This is Jim Lyon. You're listening to Viewpoint. With me today, Kimberly Majeski. How are you, Kimberly? I'm well, Jim. How are you? I'm well. So good to see you always. Good to be here. And uh, I know that at your house you have a little boy. That's right. And that Max is brilliant, of course. How could he <laughs> not be? Well, thank you for noticing. In the company of parents who are expanding his horizons to all oh, these my. great ideas. I have no doubt... But I know also that he's just four years old. Yes. Is he watching things like The Incredibles? Have you heard of that film? Oh, my goodness. A time or two, Jim. <laughs> a time or two. <laughs> and uh, The Incredibles is an animated film that yeah. talks about a family that has kind of superpower powers mm-hmm. and uh, superhuman powers. And they, they go out and do things to make the world a better place and so on. It's fanciful. It's childlike. Even an adult watching it with their little four-year-old can be drawn in. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. But I'm bringing that up here because actually in real life, there are people who are Incredibles. That's I right. Mean, if we stop and think about it, there are people who do things that otherwise we'd think, well, that's not humanly possible. But they do it. And they do it for the good. And we're in a series here on Viewpoint talking about the Incredibles of the early centuries of the Christian era, because this was a group of people who actually turned the world upside down. They made the world a better place, and they breathed life into it in ways that no person could do alone, it seems to me. It's just beyond human reason, and yet it happened. Today on Viewpoint, we're going to talk about the Incredibles then and how we might become Incredibles now. Kimberly, you and I are talking about uh, The Incredibles. It's an animated film that actually could say a thing or two, even to those of us who are adults. Mm -hmm. But you have a four-year-old boy. He's drawn (laughs) to this story about superhero parents and family. What is it about that that you think your son at four years old is drawn to? You know, I think he loves the idea that his mom could make spaghetti for him for dinner and then at night while he's asleep change into this spandex costume and go out and fight bad guys. I think that's very entertaining for him. (laughs) He he likes to dream of the day when his parents actually are these wonder workers. That's right. uh, And they have these two lives they live. One is the ordinary and one is the extraordinary. And there's something in him that wants to see his parents always as this valiant warriors for truth and justice, right? That's right. And I I don't... I don't take that from him, Jim. (laughs) I allow him to have those kind of ideas. (laughs) And... uh, and it's not just about you. I'm sure he sees his dad as, oh my a, as like a Superman, of yeah, course. Yeah, we listen. All, it's so funny all the time because he speaks about his dad as the strongest, biggest guy in the world. You know, even is he stronger even than my dad? And you know my husband, Kevin. He's a, a realtor and a pianist. Um, and he's fabulous and handsome and all those things. But I'm not sure strongest and biggest <laughs> In the wide world, it is how we describe him, right? But that's how Max that's sees him. That's how Max him. sees him, yeah. And I think that Max is a good illustration for all of us because deep down inside of all of us, even as we grow and become adults, mm-hmm. there's a childlike thirst every now and then to be that superhero, to be yeah. the valiant warrior or that princess in the Frozen movie who creates mm-hmm. summer again after everything's been chilled out. Yes. I mean, we all have this thirst to be able to make a difference, to be a kind of incredible. But then we think, well, what can we do? Which brings us to actually the subject of our program today. That's right. In history, there are incredibles. And if you went back 20 centuries, you're going to find a small group of people who have an intersection with a guy named Jesus. And it is so compelling 
is so transformative that this tiny group of people who really are not wealthy, they're not well-educated, they Mm -hmm. don't possess social status, they're not a part of the nobility or the government, this small group of people will, in short order, turn the world upside down. That's true. The Roman Empire, the greatest empire to date in all of history that circumnavigated the Mediterranean and reached into Asia and Mm -hmm. was famed for its power and its Mm -hmm. economic and cultural prowess, it was completely upended by this little group of people that you'd have to call incredibles. How could they do it? Right. And that question, how did they do it? How did Christianity overturn the empire? That question has been analyzed by many people over many centuries. People like you and me, Kimberly, we're people of faith. And it's easy for us to run to a straightforward answer. Well, it was a God thing. God favored them, and he advanced the cause, and he supernaturally intervened in the course of human events to make this outcome realized. And I would say there's some real merit to that. I believe in a God who still speaks into and alters the course of history. Sure. But for someone who's not a person of faith, they're not buying that. They're saying, (laughs) there is no God. That's crazy. You can't interpret random events in our world through that supernatural lens. Mm -hmm. There must be another answer. And I've often heard it said, well, it was all about the Roman Emperor Constantine. This guy comes along, third, fourth centuries of the empire. He, He opens the door to make being a Christian something that is legal and safe, Mm -hmm. where previously had not been. And they say, oh, it's just the fact that Christianity overtook the empire was the consequence of politics and power. It had nothing to do with the supernatural. It's just the reality that the church was used to advance Constantine and his successors' gain. Right. But what you and I are talking about today, what this book that we're talking about addresses, is that these are these are centuries prior to Constantine. We're talking about the years at the dawn of uh, the early church where there's persecution, there's oppression, Christians are hiding in fear. We're talking about a movement of martyrs, uh, of, of people who face death because of their beliefs, and they still flourish and turn the culture upside down. Before there was a Constantine. There was a powerful sweep across the empire of Christians who lived in a countercultural way and changed the very face of the whole civilization. How did that happen? Well, you just referred to the book we're looking at. This is a book we've been visiting in this series on Viewpoint. And the book is called The Triumph of Christianity, How a Forbidden Religion Swept an Empire. The author's name is Bart Ehrman. He is not himself a believer. He describes himself as an agnostic atheist. He's an academic. He teaches at the University of North Carolina uh, at Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. And he has written many books. He's a popular author. He's one of those rare birds, you might say, that is able to speak with credibility to an academic audience and Mm -hmm. also to a popular one. Mm -hmm. And in this book, The Triumph of Christianity, he tries to examine how did this group of people that you and I have branded the Incredibles, how did they achieve so much given their limited resources and capacity, it would seem, by human measure? And he's come up with six ideas, six reasons. In his analysis, it wasn't about Constantine. It's not about politics and power. It's not either about God. He doesn't believe there even is a God. he doesn't. No, there's something else at play. And these ideas, I think, are so instructive for us. Because no matter where you land, as a person of faith or without faith, there's something true about this story, the history of the Christian church in those years. 
And today we're going to talk about one of those six reasons that those people took the world over without an army, without a television cable network, without a book publisher, without anything except their presence. How did they do it? Ehrman says it was because it was a religion of love. As you're listening to our program today, you may have a thought you want to share, a comment you want to make, or even a question you want to ask. Maybe you'd like to invite us to come alongside you on your journey and pray with you about something. Whatever's on your heart, we want you to know we're always glad to hear from you. And you can call us 24 hours a day and seven days a week by dialing this toll-free number, 1-800-757-VIEW. That's 1-800-757-8439. I will give you the number again at the end of our broadcast today, but never forget this. Your voice is welcome and treasured. Kimberly, you and I are talking about uh, this book, Christianity, how it triumphed over the Roman world, Mm -hmm. written by Bart Ehrmans. And as we have been diving into the analysis, he concluded that the early Christians were so loving, not just to each other, but to the world around them, that it became an irresistible force. Nothing could stop the advance of the gospel because they demonstrated through the way in which they interacted with others the difference of their faith journey and the ordinary course of life in the world otherwise. And that religion of love was transformational. Paul talks about it in his letters, this idea that we live as this really an alternative to the world, that... The way that we love, which is the way that Christ loved, we love in the way Christ loved, that we are, people are drawn to this and they they can't help but sort of be drawn to this because it is so other than the culture that they live in, where it's competitive, where it's status oriented, where the particular uh, rung where you're born into is where you stay for your life unless you're in the military. Uh, where if you're unless you're you're in a particular class, you don't have a vote. You don't you don't have a say in government. Uh, so it's a completely alternative sense of looking and being in the world in their time period. We sometimes look at popular media and its representations of the Roman world, and we see people who live in palaces and you know breezy columns and colonnades, and and I, I see you know heated pools and all yes, you know all that stuff that, yeah. that we get in this popular culture. But that was the tiny, the one percenters, you might say. It's about uh, 8 to 10% of the entire population, yeah, for sure. Had access to anything we'd consider to even be just Sustenance. subsistence. Yes. That's right. So it's a world of scarcity. And in that world, mm-hmm. the Christians who were part of that lower class, they were sharing with others in That's a right. way that everybody else was just struggling to survive they were willing to deny themselves to help others survive. And that became a kind of a witness that was just so compelling. People were asking about it. And so it became not just a a theory of thought. It wasn't just a a premise of systematic theology. Mm -hmm. It was a way of life Mm -hmm. that became a social movement that befriended the friendless that fed the hungry and cared for the weak. Yeah, and we should say that this is the consistent call of God throughout Scripture. Uh, I always talk about in Genesis when God is calling out to Cain, and Cain asks, am I my brother's keeper? 
that God for the rest of the corpus of scripture answers emphatically, yes, you are. So the people of God in the Hebrew Bible and in, in, in the, in the uh, stories of Exodus and Leviticus, when we talk about the law and the prophets and the judges, the call to the people is to take care of the poor, the widows and orphans and aliens, right? So that's consistent. But when Jesus stands up in that synagogue at Nazareth, we, we've talked about many times, and he gives his sort of mission purpose statement, Jesus is saying, I've come to do those things. Uh, and what we know historically is that some of those things hadn't been happening the way that God had called them to happen through the Hebrew people at that time. And so Jesus sort of reinvigorates that and calls all people to him in this way. He says, I've come to fulfill the law, not destroy it. In other words, That's I'm going right. to act it out for you. It's not the, new. Yeah. I'm going to act it out for you in the way it should be acted out. That's right. You may have the words in your head, but you're not acting it out just in the way it was intended. So I'm going to show you how that's done. Mm-hmm. In fact, Jesus says the sum of the law and the prophets is this. That's right. Love God with your whole self and love your neighbors as yourself. That simple mantra mm-hmm. spread like wildfire through the Roman Empire in those that's early right. centuries. And that's what made these people incredibles because it was again without precedent. It had no peers. There was nobody else. There was another group. No one seemed to have the same kind of energy or ambition to help love others as they love themselves. And as we think about Jesus, he's the catalyst for the whole thing. That's right. And there's a famous passage in Matthew's Mm. gospel where Jesus clearly draws for us a picture of what the world is coming to, a day what you might describe as the end of the age, Mm -hmm. uh, a closure. And uh, this also powerfully motivated the early believers, as it should motivate us, that the world is moving inevitably to an end date. And when that happens, there'll be a reckoning, a judgment day sometimes it's called, and Jesus spoke about that. He said, I'm here to show you how to live until that day. And this is what's going to happen on that day. And his description of it, while it could be terrifying if you read it one way, it's so like reassuring and inspiring in another way, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Which describes the two paths that all of us can take in life and where they will lead. So Kimberly, this is Matthew chapter 25, begins with verse uh, 31. Why do you begin reading for us uh, down to verse 40 and I'll pick it up from there. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me, I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. The early believers 
had these words embedded in their hearts. And in a world of difficulty and scarcity and poverty and unspeakable loss, they understood that I'm on the road with some other people and I need to care for them. And I need to care for them just like it was Jesus. That's the upside of the teaching. And it was so powerful and motivating for them. But then Jesus continues in the same verse to show you what can happen otherwise. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, this is Jesus speaking, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you did not give me a drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me into your home. I was naked and you did not give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will reply, but Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. Brothers, let us come together Walking in the Spirit There's much to be done We will come reaching Out from our comforts And they will know us by our love Sisters, we were made for kindness We can pierce the darkness As He shines through us We will come reaching With a song of healing And they will know us by our love The time is now Come church
the call of Jesus to live in such a way and to prove our love true in such a way that we will share with others in need, even people we do not know. The whole tenor of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 25 is almost as if he was a passerby. You were passing by me and you saw me in need and you helped me. This imperative to love others as we love ourselves, not to guard ourselves first and then maybe we'll have something left over, not to take care of what we value most and then see where the other chips will fall. That's not what Jesus was calling us to. He was calling us to a kind of magnificent generosity of heart that had never before been experienced in the world in the way he described it and lived it himself. That's right. And Bart Ehrmans, in his book, trying to understand how did Christianity overturn the empire, has concluded that it was this religion of love, loving people outside of the religious club, Mm -hmm. loving people who are not known to us, taking at face value they're created in the image of God too, and we need to do something to help them. He concludes that that was one of the critical pieces that changed the whole civilization because there was no argument against it. There was, there was no battle line that could stand in its way. There was no army that could repress it because it was just the way they lived and thought. That's right. We should say, Jim, that this parable is the last one Jesus speaks on this earth in Matthew's gospel. And it's talking about who gets in. <laughs> at the end, at the end of it all. And what he emphasizes here is that those people who get in are the people who have served the least of these. And that is so profound. And you're right. It it reflects the life of these early church folk who existed as kind of this care network, taking care of folks who were marginalized, who were cast-offs, who nobody else provided for. You know, in this ancient world, there's no insurance. There, there's no safety net. If you had a leprosy, you were just condemned. And the only way for you to survive if you're lame or a leper or if you have some affliction is that someone else takes responsibility for you. Someone else makes sure you eat, that you have shelter, that you have clothing, the things that you need. And so we see in these early years that movement of, of people who were transformed by Jesus and his love and his teaching begin to live this way. And the lesson for us today is, can we be Incredibles too? Because Ehrman concludes that the gospel was advanced not by any mass crusade or big meeting. It was not uh, advanced by any media channel. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't have all the things that we imagine today necessary for influence. Right. That the greatest influence was actually one-to-one because it was a way of life. Mm-hmm. And that when you have a whole community of people who begin to act out in this way, loving others as they love themselves, that there's a certain magnetism to it yeah. that leaves even the harshest critics stopped in their tracks. And that that actually is what changed the world. Now, today I'm looking at a world that is increasingly like an old Roman one. Mm -hmm. And maybe because those who are following Jesus have forgotten some of this elemental way of Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. and how all of us prone to aggregate our things, we protect for ourselves, we save for ourselves, we plan for ourselves. And then sometimes if we are considered to be good hearted, we think, well, out of the leftover, I'll reach out. Maybe we've forgotten what Jesus said. No, love others as you love yourself. Save for others too. That's right. If ever 
in these last 20 centuries. There is a heart cry and a need for people who can walk with Jesus in this way. It is now. What can you do? How can I live today? Join us in prayer. If Jesus is not real to you, let's pray that he will disclose himself to you, that you'll see him, meet him, and surrender to him. And if he is real to you, let's pray that he will open your eyes and your heart, ours too, to a world of need and what he might do by our hand for the good. Our Father, we're so thankful today that Jesus walked in this world and showed us how to live. May we keep our eyes fixed on him. And as we make decisions day by day about what to do with our time and with our things and with our thoughts, may we search for him. And may we find him just where he needs to be found. And may we come alongside and be truly the body of Christ. May we, Lord, reach out to watch for and to come alongside those who are helpless and hopeless and most in need. And may we do so for Jesus' sake. May we not worry so much, Lord, about the ways in which we might be disadvantaged, but by the ways in which we can help. I pray, Lord, for anyone listening today who does not know Jesus personally, that you will strive in their hearts and don't let them escape the wonderful call of your voice just now. Draw them to yourself and to people who know you. For everyone who knows Jesus already, I pray that you will call us in our hearts to be more like Jesus. Don't let us escape that call. Thank you for hearing our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, what to do next? Prayer matters, and I believe if you prayed that with us, God is going to answer it. I promise you he will. But then what? Give us a call. Our toll-free number again, 1-800-757-VIEW. That's 1-800-757-8439. But Kimberly, I know some people may not be so sure-footed enough to call, How about online? Where could they check us out online? Right. You could visit us online at our website at cbhviewpoint.org. You can send us a message there, and we'll respond. That's right. CBH Viewpoint. That's Christians Broadcasting Hope, viewpoint.org. At the last, you could also just send me a letter. Address it to Jim Lyon, Viewpoint, Post Office Box 2420, Anderson, Indiana, 46018, USA. But whether you give us a call, check us out online, or use the post, please let us hear from you this week. Thanks, Kimberly, for coming alongside. You know what I think? I think you and Kevin Majeski could be incredibles. Really, <laughs> don't don't downplay or undermine your potential. Watch for our Halloween potential. costumes. There you go. But in real life, I know you do some of what we've just been talking about. And may all of us be able to say the same. And for you tuning in today, thanks for coming alongside. We'll hope that you'll start dreaming about being incredible yourself for Jesus' sake. For all of us at the Viewpoint Ministries team, for all of us at Church of God Ministries, which is the host of our broadcast, this is Jim Lyon. Stay tuned.